It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Joined, as always, with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are you? Good morning. Uh, great to be here. I just had to shift into a different office in my office to avoid the uh, sound of the city of Victoria jackhammering going on <laughs> immediately outside the other window. Well, at least the business of the city carrying on, albeit perhaps louder than we would uh, uh, prefer. What is on the agenda today? Well, uh, the first couple of cases deal with uh, issues surrounding who's responsible for what in the criminal justice system. Um, and the, the very first case is a decision out of the B.C. Court of Appeal, and it is dealing with the uh, concept of a joint submission, which we've spoken about uh, before. And the idea with a, a joint submission in the context of a criminal prosecution is that the uh, Crown prosecutor and the defense uh, would uh, often come to a uh, agreement in order to resolve an outstanding uh, criminal case. Uh, and oftentimes that agreement would include an agreement in terms of what the appropriate sentence would be. Uh, and then the legal issue becomes, what is the judge required to do when you have both the prosecutor and the defense coming and saying, we've come to an agreement and we're both asking that a particular sentence be uh, imposed? Is the judge required to do that? Are they free to impose whatever they want? Uh, who's responsible for what? Um, and one of the things which I think is interesting to many people, I think often misunderstood, mm -hmm. um, is that often in a criminal case, the lawyers involved in the case are going to have vastly more information about what's been going on than a judge would have who's yes. coming into the case usually cold. And it's important the judges come in cold, as it were, to a case, because you want to make sure that the process is uh, transparent and you don't want judges reading memos and things in the back room you, you want to make sure that the, the basis upon which a judge is making a decision is transparent for all to see so that's why we have an open court process yes You're free to come and watch and see what's going on that would be pretty seriously undermined if judges were flipping through police reports and witness statements in the back room so we don't do that now one of the consequences of that is that oftentimes the lawyers involved with the case, the Crown Prosecutor and the defense, would have a pretty nuanced understanding of what all is going on in a case. What might be the problems? What are the inconsistencies or wish, witness issues or other things that might influence the possible outcome if a case was going to proceed to trial? And so with some frequency, with all of that information at hand, uh, cases get resolved and often resolved in a way that amounts to a compromise on both sides, right? The defense might say, well, look, uh, you know, you may not be able to prove this. You've got a problem with this inconsistent, unreliable witness. But on the other hand, maybe you could. And so oftentimes you come to a an agreement. And the agreement can often take the form of an accused person agreeing to plead guilty and then the Crown agreeing with the defense that a particular sentence would should be imposed. And the Supreme Court of Canada, um, a few years ago now, in a case called Anthony Cook, um, set out the principles that a judge is required to apply when they have a guilty plea and a joint submission before them. Uh, and the essence of it is, from that case, that a judge is required to impose the joint submission that both lawyers are asking for 
uh, unless the judge concludes that uh, imposing the joint submission would uh, result in um, a sentence which would sort of undermine public confidence in the administration of justice. Quite a high threshold. Uh, And the reason for that, as the Supreme Court set out, is if judges were routinely uh, failing to impose what was agreed to, you just wouldn't have agreements. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the crown said, "Look, you plead guilty, we'll ask for this, and we'll agree to it." If judges routinely just did whatever they they thought was appropriate based on whatever limited information they had, cases, of course, wouldn't resolve. I see. And so that came to an issue uh, in a case uh, from the island up in Port Alberni, where uh, there was a, a serious fact pattern involving a man who uh, had uh, pled guilty to. Uh, committing um, sexual assaults of children, uh, in some cases, a number of years earlier. There's a 42-year-old man. One of the cases was from when he was 17 years of age. But nonetheless, a very serious fact pattern. Uh, And the lawyers involved had a a joint submission they put before the judge. But the judge said, no, I've got other ideas about this. The lawyers were asking for a sentence of two years followed by three years of probation. And the judge said, I don't think that's appropriate. I'm not going to go along with it, and imposed a sentence of uh, four years and a few months of jail. And so on that basis, this all got to the Court of Appeal. uh, And just last week, the Court of Appeal concluded that the judge uh, was not proper in departing from the joint submission that the lawyers had uh, agreed to. Um, And the uh, court pointed out, now, all of the reasons why uh, the Supreme Court of Canada made its decision in that case called Anthony Cook mm-hmm. uh, and pointed out, of course, things that would include the fact that uh, judges would not perhaps be aware of all of the reasons why uh, a particular sentence might have been uh, agreed to uh, and made clear that if a judge was going to depart from a joint submission, They had to give clear and cogent reasons that would address all of the reasons why uh, joint submissions should ordinarily be uh, approved of and implemented, Uh, and in this case found that the uh, judge that uh, did not implement the joint um, submission had failed to do that, and so instead uh, imposed what had originally been agreed to. Uh, And uh, I should say it's uh, one of those appeals which is perhaps not common, uh, which would be where the defense was appealing the longer sentence, but the Crown agreed uh, that the uh, judge had made an error in departing from the joint submission. And so both the Crown and the defense in the Court of Appeal took the position that uh, the judge didn't have authority to uh, depart from the joint submission um, in the fact pattern of this case. And so the Court of Appeal agreed to do that. So the takeaway for people is to sort of appreciate what the role is of the crown of defense and a judge in a sentencing hearing where there's been an agreement that's led to a person pleading guilty and a joint submission. And that is to say, the judge does have a residual discretion, but they're not free to simply uh, implement whatever sentence they might think would be appropriate based on whatever information has been put before them. They are only permitted to depart from what they're being asked to do on this fairly high threshold Uh, that uh, imposing the joint submission uh, would uh, bring the administration of justice into disrepute uh, or otherwise be contrary to the public interest, a very high threshold. They're not permitted to simply tinker with the submission or depart from it 
simply because they don't think it's the uh, sentence that they would have imposed uh, based on the information uh, that they have. So there it is. That's, I think, an important thing to know when you're seeing decisions about sentence and a judge imposing them. Uh, it's not always the case that it's the judge who, with a free hand, is determining what they think would be appropriate based on the information that they have before them in court. And it recognizes that the prosecutor and the defense often have much more information about the background of a case, the witnesses, the issues, and so on, uh, that would uh, justify often uh, a a position that's put before them as a joint submission. Let's take our first break, Legally Speaking, on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll continue right after this. Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Um, I'm reading here... Police and suing Crown Counsel for how they conduct a prosecution. Michael, you're going to have to help me out as a layperson. I don't know who can sue who or why. I didn't even know police could be able to sue the Crown or, or vice versa. Well, what's this all about? Yes, indeed. And I mean, I guess the first thing that the case demonstrates is that the Crown and the police are definitely not the same entity, right? Yes. Um, in Canada, the prosecution is separate uh, from the police who do the investigation. And with some frequency, there's actually some tension there between the police and the Crown, because the Crown is making decisions about things like, is a charge going to be approved? How is the case going to be prosecuted? This kind of thing. And often there's tension there between the Crown and the police. And that's not a bad thing. Now, this particular case, which is uh, just released by the Supreme Court of Canada, um, it's a case out of Toronto, and it started with, it sounds like, a fairly violent robbery of a crane supply company where there was $350,000 worth of copper piping stolen. And in the course of that, an employee bound up with zip ties and duct tape. So a serious case. Uh, but it got interesting, or more interesting, uh, when the police wound up arresting uh, two people as suspects in that uh, robbery of the crane supply company. Uh, and the two men that the police arrested uh, eventually alleged that the police had uh, beaten them fairly seriously uh, in uh, an effort to uh, get a confession from them. Uh, One of the two men uh, had a broken rib, uh, and uh, both men uh, alleged that they were strip-searched and beaten, and various things happened to them while in the custody of the police. And what the Crown did with that, who were prosecuting the case, Mm -hmm. the man who was most seriously, uh, alleged the most serious beating involving the broken rib, uh, the Crown simply stayed the proceedings. They said, look, the confession that was extracted, we don't think is going to be admissible. Uh, And they accepted what the man had said about being beaten. The other man, they continued with the prosecution. He was convicted by a jury. The trial judge said, uh, well, we're going to, I'm not going to stay the charges, but I'll reduce your sentence as a result of um, your evidence about being beaten by the police. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Crown in the case did not call the police officers involved to give evidence about what they said about whether they beat these men or not. Hmm. The Crown, it would appear, accepted what the men had to say about being uh, beaten by the police. Uh, and in one case, the Crown thought, well, this is so serious, we're seeing the charges, the man who had the broken rib. With respect to the other man, they continued with the prosecution. He was convicted by a jury, but ultimately the Ontario Court of Appeal entered a stay of proceedings 
uh, and were very critical uh, of the police, saying, look, uh, you know, the man says that he was beaten. We can't have the criminal justice system proceeding with prosecutions where the police are arresting people and beating a confession out of them. Indeed. Uh, and we are staying the proceedings. Um, and they noted the Crown has accepted what these men have said. No evidence was called to the uh, contrary. Now, of course, at this point, though, one of the issues I talked about in the previous story the Crown, of course, may be privy to information that uh, the judge or the Court of Appeal or even the Supreme Court of Canada may ultimately not be aware of. For example, right, the police may have notes, they may have produced a report, there may be other things going on that the judge is unaware of in terms of why did the Crown take the position they were taking, which is to say, believing the men, not calling the police officers, uh, and proceeding on the basis that these beatings occurred. Now, the police took a different view of it, uh, and the police took the view that it was improper for the Crown not to have called the officers to give them a chance to refute the claims of beating these men. And the police involved took the position that failing to do that caused serious harm to the reputation of the police officers involved. And no doubt it did cause serious harm to their reputation. They were deemed, they were called out by the Court of Appeal, it was presented in the media, the Supreme Court of Canada has just commented on all of this. Yes. And so the police involved sued Crown Council uh, for $500,000, alleging that they had acted negligently and in, in an intentionally wrong way by failing to call them as witnesses uh, to refute the claims that these men had made about being beaten to extract a confession. And so that is the issue that what just made its way to the Supreme Court of Canada. That is to say, can the police sue the Crown, alleging that they were negligent in how they conducted a prosecution or did something wrong in terms of how they conducted a prosecution? Uh, and in that regard, there is this concept of prosecutorial immunity. And the idea there is that generally you can't sue the Crown for how they or whether they uh, conduct a prosecution. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine why that would have a potentially chilling effect, right? Yeah. If every time the Crown decided not to sue someone, not to charge somebody, they got sued by the complainant, or they decided to proceed with a charge and the person was acquitted, they got sued for doing that. And so historically, that's been almost absolute. That is to say, the immunity that prosecutors have enjoyed in order to ensure that they can make independent decisions. But there have been some, uh, there's been some erosion of that recently, and one of the BC cases that we saw uh, where that was uh, limited mm -hmm. was a case out of Vancouver, Henry, we may recall, we talked about it. Yeah. Henry was a case where the Crown involved withheld exculpatory information that would have suggested that this man who was convicted of all of these terrible sexual assaults of women in downtown Vancouver was innocent. <laughs> they just didn't tell the accused about it. He was convicted and spent many years in prison and then was eventually uh, exonerated and released. I think it was DNA evidence. Um, and the in that case, the Crown was found to be uh, liable for the decision not to disclose evidence which would suggest the man was innocent. They just didn't tell him about it or give it to his lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so prosecutorial immunity is not absolute. But here, the Supreme Court of Canada concluded that um, 
the police uh, don't have the ability to civilly sue the lawyers involved, the Crown or the Attorney General, uh, on the basis that uh, they didn't uh, prosecute the matter in the way the police would have liked. And they made a distinction between um, things like malicious prosecution, which would be some prosecution for some improper purpose, like, I don't like your politics, I'm charging you with a crime, right? Mm-hmm. Or other decisions like in Henry, uh, where you had the Crown deciding, hey, I've got this evidence that shows this person didn't do it potentially, I'm just not telling them about it, uh, and distinguished that kind of conduct from decisions like the one that occurred in this case, the prosecutorial decision to, for example, drop the charges or stay the charges against the man with the broken rib, uh, or in the case of the prosecution of the other man, to say, I'm not calling the police officers to give evidence about what they say happened. Uh, And so the Supreme Court of Canada found that that concept of um, immunity for prosecutors uh, does extend to prevent the police from suing them uh, over these kinds of decisions. Uh, And that decision, I think, it reinforces the distinction between Crown and police, uh, and it also emphasizes why it's important uh, that Crown be able to make some of those decisions uh, without worrying about, hey, am I going to get sued and lose my house over the decision not to uh, do this or to do that uh, in the course of a prosecution. So the protection is not absolute. It's not going to protect against malicious activity or activity like you know, withholding evidence that might show a person was innocent, but it doesn't uh, allow the police to civilly sue the Crown when they don't like uh, how a prosecution was carried out. So I think uh, another important case in terms of who's who in the zoo uh, and who is responsible for making those kinds of decisions in the context of a uh, criminal prosecution. Speaking of getting sued, we have about four minutes left, and I'm looking here at a story that touches on the concept of absolute privilege with respect to claims for defamation. Yes, indeed. And so this is another legal example, another brand-new case out of uh, B.C., the Court of Appeal, Uh, involving that concept of absolute privilege in the context of a civil claim. And the fact pattern here was that a man who was a commercial trucker was uh, suing uh, over a car accident. And so ICBC was defending it. And the lawyer who was defending against this uh, claim by the truck driver uh, had sent letters to various people uh, that he had worked with uh, because this man's, I guess, employment history was an issue in the ICBC case, you know, was he unable to work as a result of the car accident or were there some other factors that might have impacted on that? And the interesting thing was that the man who was the plaintiff in the ICBC case had back in 2010 been charged with uh, possession of cocaine for the purpose of trafficking after some 50 kilograms of cocaine was found in the back of his truck. Now, the fact that um, the man had a trial and was acquitted was left out of a letter that the lawyer sent to various people that he'd worked with asking a question to the effect of, were you aware that this man had been uh, arrested and charged with having 50 kilograms of cocaine in the back of his truck? And uh, did that impact on his employment with you? And so the uh, man sued the law firm and ICBC and everyone involved claiming that, hey, you've damaged my reputation by sending out a letter to a bunch of people that I uh, have worked with inquiring about 
uh, or telling them about this uh, occasion when I was charged with having 50 kilograms of cocaine in my truck without telling them I had a trial and I was found not guilty. Yeah, I, I guess so, that is a material fact, isn't it? Yeah, that's probably pretty important. Uh, and I think the man's defense must have been I didn't know it was there or something. But the point is that the letter implied that he had done this when he wasn't convicted of doing it. Indeed. And so this was an application to stop that civil claim for defamation on the basis of this principle of absolute privilege, which applies to things like court pleadings, things said in court, and indeed steps taken by a lawyer in the furtherance of a civil claim. Hmm. And that principle protects absolutely from claims of defamation. And so, for example, if you have a statement of uh, claim setting out, you know, alleging that some person has done something dastardly, they can't then immediately just respond by suing you for making a a defamatory uh, statement in your claim. Otherwise, the entire process would freeze up every time somebody filed a statement of claim alleging, you know, hey, that person assaulted me. Without, without this kind of privilege, the immediate response would be, you've defamed me by claiming I'm an assaulter. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly, yeah. And, and so it wouldn't work. And, and it also wouldn't work if uh, in court lawyers had to be concerned with, well, if I ask some question or make some submission, I'm then going to immediately get sued for what I've said in court. and Or indeed, in the course of uh, asking questions, like in this case, it were, were letters pursuant to a particular rule of court that allowed those kind of inquiries to be made. And so... The court here dismissed the claim of defamation brought on behalf of the trucker, even though indeed the letter seemed rather misleading, uh, and indeed it would have, uh, I, I suspect, had the effect of damaging the man's reputation by writing to, I think, 17 people asking whether this charge of uh, having cocaine oh, in truck so bad. was the but, but <sighs> nonetheless, absolute privilege applies, and you can't sue somebody over things in a statement of claim, things said in court or inquiries made in the course of advancing a claim like that. And the court said, well, it was a legitimate inquiry. There was a, a legitimate issue in the case about, you know, was the man losing work because of an injury, or could he have lost uh, work because people found out that he was involved with this cocaine incident? And so it wasn't some completely malicious act, although I should say it certainly doesn't sound like it painted a complete picture no. <laughs> for anyone who got the letter. All so. Right. Um, anyway, some vindication, but knows no civil claim for the truck driver. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking. Thank you for your time, as always. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure.